So what usually happens is you get here on a special day like Mother's Day or Thanksgiving, Christmas, and um, then you have to give some kind of motivational, exciting Christmas message, right? And so I was searching through my Joel Osteen files and I like literally can't find anything. And uh, so this morning at 2 o'clock, I quit and I decided, you know, I'm going to just tell you what's in my heart, if that's okay. And I wanted to talk with you about flashes of heaven. And as we walk through this life, we have splashes of hell in sickness and pain, in death and loss. But at the same time, there are these flashes of heaven that we see. These flashes of heaven are flashes of hope. Oftentimes, God gives you this little peek into eternity. And this is exactly what we see happening here in Genesis chapter 28, verse 16 and 17. See, there is this fascinating theme that runs through scriptures, if you haven't recognized it yet. And that is where heaven actually opens up for humans whose, who, whose feet are on the earth to actually be united with heaven itself. Uh, so I want to look at some of these moments where either what the Bible talks about where the heaven rips open or it talks about a door in heaven was opened or a window was opened or gates were opened for humans to see into eternity. So to be clear, I'm referring to moments where humans were standing with their feet on the earth. I know that there's, an op- uh, there's, a, there's a time when the Apostle Paul was caught up into the third heaven. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when their feet were in fact standing upon the earth and they were given the ability to look and see into heaven. And these can be viewed as single moments in time where heaven and earth were united. This is what we are called to pray for. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So there are five incidents I just want to show you before we pick up on what Andre started reading in regards to Genesis 28, where Jacob fell asleep on a rock and God opened heavens to him. But here, the first example I have is in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll recognize some of these. It says, Now it came to pass in the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, Ezekiel the prophet He says, I was among the captives by the river Chibar that heavens were opened and I saw God. I had these visions of God. Now Ezekiel stands with his feet on the earth and he sees into heaven. He has visions of God and he has these very interesting sights of angels or you might call them heavenly beasts. Uh, In the very same way, later on you'll see that John, when he was on the Isle of Patmos, he saw the same things when he saw heaven. Then we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, it says, And immediately Jesus, being uh, being baptized, buried in water, by John the Baptist, it says, Coming up from the water, Jesus saw the heavens parting. And the actual literal translation is they're torn open. Torn open. So Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, And the heavens rip open, they tear open, and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And that's a moment, a flash of heaven. A moment where heaven and earth 
We're eyeball to eyeball, face to face, one with another. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 59, we see the account of a wonderful man, Stephen, who was stoned to death. It says in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Now, if you look at uh, the footnote there, it'll actually say that they were furious. They weren't repentant. They were angry. When they heard these things, they were furious, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. These are the Jews. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down the clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen, and he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What an incredible thing he must have viewed when that flash of heaven engulfed him. And he was laying there being stoned to death, shouting, God, receive me. As heaven and earth for Stephen became one. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, the Apostle John says, a door standing open in heaven. There's heaven, and a door opens for me to either look through or pass through. And the voice, the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, I must also say we're working through the book of Revelation for the second years and uh, what a fantastic, fantastic picture of God's purposes are articulated in the book of Revelation. And as he looks and he sees into heaven with his feet standing on earth, John actually sees the same things Ezekiel saw many, many centuries before him. Then in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says, Now I, now I saw heaven opened. This is John again. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So here John again stands with his feet on the earth. And heaven opens to him and he sees Christ on a white horse as he will come again. This in fact is a flash of heaven. Where both heaven and earth unite for a moment in time. So let's start shortly um, with this idea of flashes of heaven by establishing that the story of Christmas, which we are celebrating here today, is in fact the story of something very similar, a flash of heaven, but it's the beginning of an ever-increasing flash of heaven, the incarnation when heaven and earth comes together as God is incarnate. God takes upon Himself flesh. This is in fact family, the very heart of Christmas. The very heart of Christmas isn't three wise men. There were more than three, by the way. Uh, it isn't a, uh, not reindeer. It isn't a Santa who's checking a list to see if you're naughty or nice and then gives you gifts if you're good. Um, it's none of that. No, Christmas at the heart of it is in fact God taking on flesh, becoming one of us, in order to identify with us, but also so that He may die 
for us. Because as God, He cannot die. But as man, surely can. Let's watch a short video by R.C. explaining the Incarnation. What we celebrate at Christmas is not so much the birth of a baby, as important as that is, but what's so significant about the birth of that particular baby is that in this birth we have the Incarnation of God Himself. An Incarnation means a coming in the flesh. We know how John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word So I want to draw this picture that I think is so extremely valuable for all of us who celebrate Christmas for the right reasons. And that is that Christmas, at its heart, is celebrating the divine, the divine invading our world. It is God invading our world. It is heaven coming to earth. So we look at the story of Jacob as we um, put more meat to the bones in regards to this idea. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, it says, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder. This was a dream. A ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. There was a connection between earth and heaven with a ladder. And there, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, Richard Bauckham writes in his book called Who is God? Key Moments of Biblical Revelations about Jacob's Ladder, and he explains that this ladder, explained in antiquity and in scriptures, wasn't, actual, wasn't an actual ladder as we would know a painter's ladder, but it would, it would rather be more of a ziggurat. Uh, Jacob's ancestors, the, uh, the Sumerians, who came from Ur, actually built 
what we know as a ziggurat. And a ziggurat were steps up around a type of mountain all the way to the top because they believed at that time, and this is where Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, this was their ancestors. These people, their ancestors, used to worship this way because they believed that their gods were high up. And they wanted to go as high as they possibly can in order to go and worship. And so they would build a ziggurat with these flights of stairs going all the way to the top, and that's where they would go and worship. We also see, and there's a picture of, a true ancient ziggurat at Ur, which is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's ancestors actually came from. So that we still have to look at. So in other words, we see the same effort by humans during the Tower of Babel, where they attempted to make uh, um, or build this tower, where they, where they were able to make it so high that, again, they could reach heavens where earth can reach eternity, where the temporal can meet the eternal. And um, so they built this tower into the sky for man to reach God. And here is an artist's rendition of the Tower of Babel. So I wanted to make sure you understand, connect the dots, that a ziggurat or this Jacob's Ladder is pretty much connected. It's the same idea as the Tower of Babel that came afterwards. So whether it was the Sumerian, Sumerians in Ur or the Babylonians building the Tower of Babel, it's human uh, instinct. It is instinctively nature, uh, part of human nature to attempt to reach God. Man has always attempted to reach heaven. Today, people still do the same thing, but we don't do it with skyscrapers. We don't do it with reaching up with buildings. What we do now is we attempt to reach up and touch heaven with our goodness, with our high standards, with how wonderful we are, our good deeds and our works. That is what is called moralism. So when you are in a church that preaches moralism, that is in fact ancient Babylonian. That is in fact what the Sumerians practiced which God called Abraham out of. We are not a religion of morals. Now, Christianity has fruits of the Spirit which is expressive of God's morals for sure. But we don't live right in order to be right with God. No, we live right because we were made right with God through Christ. It was not man who reached up and made right with God or touched God or got himself into heaven. No, it was first, it was God who came down and touched man. And because man was touched, after God invaded him, invaded his world, invaded his life, now, as a result, he lives a moral life before the Lord. That is why I always drive the point home that you are saved in three tenses. You are saved in three time zones. The Bible says you were saved, justification. The Bible says that you are being saved, sanctification. The Bible says that you will be saved, glorification. 
And the only possible way you know that you were saved, past tense justification, is that you are being saved, sanctification. The only way you know that somebody is saved is that you see they bearing fruits. Their fruits might be young, but they are growing. Have you ever noticed every single thing alive grows? We grow old. <laughs> Everything grows. Fruits grow. And if somebody has been justified, they will be continually sanctified, and that is the proof that they were justified. So if God is sanctifying you, in other words, you're living more and more like Him, closer and closer to Scripture, this is your only possible way of knowing that He actually did reach in and touch your life. So we are not like those Sumerians who attempt to reach God because we are great, or like those Babylonians who built the Tower of Babel who in their pride decided that they were going to reach heaven. No, we are the opposite. We are the ones who humbly come to God, and without Him reaching down to us, there is no possible way for heaven and earth to meet. There's no possible way for you and I to actually have in us right now eternity. So today, people still do that same thing that the Sumerians did, that the Babylonians did. But we believe in an absolute miracle from God. So what do we have here? Is Jacob sleeping? He has a dream which he sees this ladder or this top of a ziggurat which he'll be familiar with. And this staircase, let me just call it that, that Jacob sees in his dream is in fact a point of contact. It is a bridge, if you will, a way of passing over from this world to the, to the world of transcendence. It's, it's that contact from where Jacob existed to the world where God exists. Now, in our day and our age, I'm sure you've heard this if you've been to high school or college, of course, you know this, and if you've watched any kind of news, you know this, but we are being told by secular humanists or secular philosophers and skeptics that this world is all there is. Now, we have a series called The Enemies of God. It's on our website where I explain this in depth. But we live in a time and an age of secular humanism. Humanism, it's all about man. And secular is in fact, from, comes from the word seculum. It's a Latin word. And it means this time and this age. This time and this age. Secularism is the idea that there is no heaven, there is no God, there is no afterlife, there is no eternity, there is no other place. When you die, go into the ground and you rot. It follows that man therefore must live out his life in this time and in this place. And they call it the here and the now. The here and now. Go out, go out there, live your life. You only got one life to live. Go and live your life. This is it. Where we don't believe that this is it. We believe that this is a precursor to it. Right? So secular humanism is the idea, and you'll, all the, new, all the um, new atheists will drive this point home. You are living for the here, and you are living for the now. This is all you've got. You only live once. Make the best of it. Now, 
agnostics, they look at it a little bit different. They, on the other hand, say maybe they, they, they might be something out there, but there's no way for us to know. And whatever is out there is indifferent to us. It doesn't matter. Again, live your life like there is no heaven. Live your life like even if there is one, it doesn't matter. Live your life that there's no God, and even if there is a God, live it like it doesn't matter. He's indifferent to you anyhow. Those are the agnostics. These are all secularists. So the conclusion here is, it leaves us with a modern society who either believes that there is no God, or the best possible way is for there to be a God, but we cannot know Him and it doesn't matter. So consider now that Jacob, he grew up, not experiencing a burning bush. Uh, there was no cloud by day, pillar by night. Uh, there was no stories about the ten plagues. It hadn't happened yet, or the Red Sea hadn't opened up yet. So he wasn't very familiar with an experience with God. Uh, he may have had st heard stories of God moving in the past with Adam and Eve and maybe with Noah. But that's pretty much it. And uh, a personal account with God was a total foreign concept to Jacob. However, in his dream, he saw this bridge, he saw this ladder that crossed between the transcendent world into this world and that crossed from heaven to earth back and forth. So what did Jacob in fact see when he looked at the ladder? What was he looking at? What's the interpretation of that Bible story? And I'm wanting to connect it to Christmas because Christmas is at its heart the incarnation. It's God invading the world. And all those secularists that don't believe there is any God, He's actually here. He has invaded our world. He is with us. And they, did not know, they do not know it. So what did Jacob see? And we're going to now go to a New, Testament a New Testament portion where the New Testament, Jesus actually interprets Jacob's ladder. So let's turn to the New Testament and see what it says about the Old Testament flash of heaven that Jacob saw in his dream. In John chapter 1, verse 44, John chapter 1, verse 44 through 45, it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. The one whom Moses speaks of in the law and also the prophets wrote of. His name is Jesus, and he's of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, if we were still waiting for the Messiah, and I come to you and I say, Hey, I found Jesus. And you say, Where is he from? And I say, um, He's from the Sunset Strip. He's from... <laughs> Las Vegas, <laughs> born and raised on the streets, Las Vegas. <laughs> you go like, ah, no, I don't think so. If Jesus is from anywhere, he's from the buckle of the Bible belt. He's from Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> As I hear Nathaniel goes like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite in, indeed, in whom is no deceit. It's so funny. He said, is there any good person that comes out of this 
bad city, Nazareth. Jesus sees him and says, of all the Israelites, look, I found one who's not a liar. <laughs> I found one with, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. So in other words, Nathanael, you recognize that I'm a prophet. I'm a seer. And that's enough for you to believe that I'm the Messiah? Well, you haven't seen anything yet. You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, watch this, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter, you can take the word hereafter out, that was added, most assuredly I say to you, you shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here, Jesus is in fact interpreting what Jacob saw when he saw the ladder and, this, and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Here he calls himself the fulfillment of that picture that Jacob saw many, many centuries before. He saw the angels of God moving up and down between two worlds, invading earth, heaven invading earth, coming back and forth, back and forth, between the eternal and the, and the temporal, between heaven and earth. What Jacob saw was what happened the night Jesus was born. How did they know that this virgin, this, this pregnant virgin was from God? An angel, back and forth. Angels were involved all the time, making the announcement of who this is, Jesus. They even sang, glory to God. Angels worshiping God, who both sits, think about this, in the highest of heavens, and now... Is, has become the most dependent on human as a baby. God was at the same time the most elevated and yet became the most despised and rejected both at the same time. Heaven invading earth in a very, very interesting way. And this is why the Bible says angels look upon this and they marvel. They look upon it and they are blown away that they are flying around shouting holy, holy, holy back and forth to the highest of heavens and to the humblest of man on earth. And they're going back and forth and they say, this is the most incredible thing. I don't understand this. Why didn't he, instead of being incarnate into a fleshly fallen human, why didn't he rather become an angel why didn't he instead of putting on flesh why didn't he put on the angelic robe as a matter of fact many of the early fathers uh, teach that this was where the jealousy started within the ranks of the angels that they were so offended at the fact of what they saw was going to happen. 
Now, I'm not saying that that's true. I just know that that teaching is out there all the way from the early fathers. Now, in, es in essence, Jesus was saying, Nathaniel, if you are impressed with what you see, like, <laughs> I said I saw you under a fig tree, and you knew that I have to be a prophet. If that's what impresses you, then you're in for a great surprise. Jesus was saying, Nathaniel, if my ability to know you without meeting you impresses you, then buckle up. I'm more than a prophet. I am, in fact, the very divine who invades earth. I am that flash of heaven that started a, a felt fire, a bush fire. And it will never end. It will take over the whole world. I am that ladder. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the road. I am that bridge that unites both heaven and earth. You see, we take for granted the life that we have. We don't realize how much of our world, of our lives, let me say it that way, is divine, has been touched by God. Starting with this idea that you couldn't have believed and you wouldn't have believed unless He came and touched you in the first place. There's so much of the divine that's already touched you. And there's so much for us to be thankful for. Because God has invaded our lives. Just by a show of hands, how many of you can tell me for sure, if I look at the wake of my life, I see how God has invaded my life without a shadow of doubt. So many of you, I know your testimonies. Let me just tell you, if it wasn't for God, who knows where you would have been. God has invaded our lives. God has invaded our world. We have seen many flashes of heaven. Jesus was saying to Nathaniel, you're going to see the incarnation, Nathaniel. You're going to see the personification of the ladder of Jacob, that very same ladder Jacob saw, because I am the personified ladder. I am the personification of a flash of heaven. Jesus was saying, Nathaniel, heaven has come down to you. That's who I am. That gap has been bridged, not because man has gone up to God, like the Sumerians tried to do with a ziggurat, not like the Babylonians tried with the, with the Tower of Babel, Babel. He says, no, that gap has been bridged, not by man attempting to reach God, but because God has come down and He reached His own enemies. God overcame your resistance. God softened your heart. He gave you a brand new heart. That's why you can believe, repent, and submit. What we too often lose sight of is this great fact that Jesus is in fact God. Not lesser than God. No, He didn't become lesser to come down. That's what the philosophers of the Enlightenment in the 19th century was teaching. That Jesus had to become less in order to walk this earth. This is absolutely against Scripture. No, He was fully God and He is fully man. He took on flesh so that He could identify with us, so that He could communicate with us, 
so that He could reach us, so that He could die for us, so that He could conquer death and hell for us, so that He could get us to become spotless, so we could be His bride. This is why His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has invaded this world. And nobody, not the UN, nobody can stop Him from setting up His kingdom and invading this world. Genesis 28, verse 16 and 17, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. You know, when you listen to all those philosophers, <clears throat> those secularists, those humanists, they do not know this, but God has invaded our world. Folks, I really want you to lay your head on the pillow of God's sovereignty when you turn on the news. Stop being anxious. Wars, people talking about all these possibilities. And look, nobody's going to make history outside of God. He's not not God here. He is God always, everywhere, including here. And so when you see things happening, lift your hands up and praise Him. <laughs> praise God. He is God everywhere. He has invaded our world. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Because Jacob woke up and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. Most don't know it. In the church, most don't know it. But He is sovereign. He is God. And He is here. He has closed the gap. He is working. And then it says, verse 17, And He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Hey, um, I can't, I'm going to have to stop talking about this, but let me just say this to you. I can talk about this forever. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Surely He is in this place. And I didn't even know it. When you study through the book of Revelation, exegetically speaking so, you will find that the tabernacle that Moses had traveled throughout the desert with, is a type and a shadow of heaven. The temple is a type and a shadow of heaven. What we do here today is a type and a shadow of heaven. That is why God calls us to meet, because we are practicing heaven. That is why we are called to sing to worship, to glorify Him. Because as, jo as John looked into heaven and he saw everything, he listed everything he saw in heaven, it is in fact the reality of what we saw take place in the temple. And when he said, this is the house of God, he was saying, that here starts heaven on earth. 
Here is the gate of heaven. That's what it says right there. The gate of heaven. This is where heaven kisses earth. This is where heaven unites with earth. Never trivialize or make small of our time of worship together. Now, worship isn't singing a slow song in a minor key. Worshiping is when we surrender ourselves to God together as a body. This is true for humanity today. Even though God came to earth and revealed Himself in the form of a man, even though Jesus, our Emmanuel, came to be with us, God with us, humanity will live or humans will live like there's no God. You know people. Like, man, if you tell them that they, that they are not a biblical believer, man, they will be so upset with you. But at the same time, they live like there is no God. They live like there is no eternity. The true believer lives his life like he is already has eternal life, like he already has eternity. We live our lives before God even now. Even though Jesus was born for us, humans continue to live like, no, we can't say that there's a God. Or, no, we just live for the here and the now because that's all we have proof of. We live in a world where God is not absent, folks. We live in a world where He is present. We live in a world where He is with us. He is with you now. He's with us now. So the conclusion here today is that Jacob's ladder shows us exactly how God will reverse the effects of man's sin revealed to us by the Tower of Babel. Man's sin is to elevate himself thinking that he can elevate himself sufficiently to be right with God, to reach God and eternity. That prideful thing that you see in the Tower of Babel, God came to reverse that. Because with Jacob's ladder, it was God who came down in the flesh. It wasn't the flesh that lifted itself up to God. And in so doing, God has initiated the unification of heaven and earth. <coughs> Jesus came. He's with us. He will never leave us. And we are now called. We are now, there's a call to action in this. If God has invaded your life, which I believe He has, if He has invaded your world, which I know He has, if He is with us, which I know that He is, then we have to continue to live for Him by laboring in His kingdom. This is why He said, if you want to pray, pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, let Your name be honored everywhere. And let Your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth. Let it be done on earth. This is why we evangelize. This is why we have a Bible school. This is why we have services. This is, this is why we have psalm sings. This is why we do everything that we do. Because we know we have a revelation of the reality of the fact that God, heaven, has invaded earth. God has invaded our lives. And we are thankful and humbled because of that. And this is the very heart of Christmas. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Give the Lord a praise offering. Thank you. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you, Father, for this wonderful Christmas season where we can declare. When we say Merry Christmas, we declare so many different things. We declare that God has invaded humanity. Heaven has invaded earth. But more so, we are grateful and humbled that you have invaded our lives. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Oh God, I pray that these flashes of heaven will be what we live for. There'll be sufficient hope for us to get past all the splashes of hell that we experience along the way. I thank you, Father, for every person that's here today. I pray, Father God, for every single individual. I pray, God, that you open their hearts and open their minds so that they can open the Scriptures and see you, see your will. Lord God, that they will be fed by your Word, that your Word will be bread of life to them, that your Word will be daily manna for them. Lord, that they will grow in it, that they will be strengthened by it. And Lord, when they open up their Word, the word, your word, that they will know it. It's your will. It is your way. And Lord, as they submit themselves to your word, they are submitting themselves to you. As they honor your word, they are honoring you. As they obey your word, they are obeying you. Lord, I pray for every person who do, who do not yet know you. I pray and beg you, God, for your mercy upon their lives, that you will invade their lives like you did the Apostle Paul's. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.